We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking to, well, the great Doug McIntyre will be uh, stopping by. We'll be talking U.S. men's national team, U.S. men's national team versus Mexico, again, Holland, uh, Arsenal breaking up, ooh, best U.S. men's national team coach in history, Julie so good, Nouveau Riche versus OG MLS clubs, Washington Crossing, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, April 17th in the year 2023? I am doing well, although this past weekend I was not David Mossy. I became Charles Edward Dahl, a carpenter from Adelaide, Australia. What, what, I have no idea what you're talking about. Explain this to me. Saturday was the anniversary of the Titanic sinking. Okay. April, celebrate or something? April, April 15, 1912, so 111 years ago. So I attended the Titanic exhibit here in Los Angeles. Ooh. It's also going on in New York. I recommended it to my parents. It was very cool. And the way it works is when you buy your quote-unquote ticket for the exhibit, they actually give you a boarding pass of somebody who was on the Titanic. Oh my God. So I got this guy, Charles Edward Dahl from Adelaide, Australia, who survived, by the way. Third-class passenger survived. Um, but very cool. I recommend it. Um, tons of artifacts and you learn a lot of history about the building of the ship. And then, uh, obviously each room is sort of like built like a compartment in the ship. And then ultimately you learn about the tragedy and what the aftermath was. So I, I was on a big Titanic. Are there artifacts weekend. in this, in this, or is it just set up? Like you said, it's in, in New York too. How can it be in both places at the same time? It's like what, uh, the type of china they would have used okay, on that it. ship, not the actual one, but you so know, it's an so, experience. Yes, uh, if you will. Everything is sort of a recreation. Got of, it. Got it. All right. Well, all right. Well, that's a that's a great recommendation. That actually sounds kind of cool. I, I, I would like to check. You read anything or uh, watch anything? Well, you'll be happy to know Jeffany Le Livre. Jeffany. Yeah. <laughs> okay. About uh, the book about the Israeli spy Ellie Cohen. So I was also on kind of a big uh, Israeli spy Mossad kick this weekend. Watched a couple of documentaries. Uh, but now I've got it out of my system so I can move on with my life. You're going to read some stuff in English now? <laughs> <Going forward? laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, what about uh, you know, my wife was screaming and yelling about Succession again. Uh, so that continues on, right? Yes. So this was the episode after the death of a major character. So it was kind of the aftermath of that. Uh, so another very compelling episode. We're, we're hitting the home stretch here. Only six left. Only six left. Oh, I can't, I can't even contain myself. Um, Okay, uh, let's see. What am I? Uh, what am I doing here? Um, just finishing up uh, a book called Washington Crossing, Washington's Crossing about Washington's Crossing of the Delaware. It's by David Hackett Fisher. Uh, so that's interesting from an American uh, uh, history perspective. Uh, and you know, I just gobble it up. I love, I, I love it all. It actually, you know, it talks about some of the fighting that was going on because it gives a, a prelude to the actual crossing and you know the the facts relative to it, also the myths relative to it, but it goes up and down that eastern seaboard and even goes into um, Princeton and New Brunswick, New Brunswick where my alma mater Rutgers is and talks about the, you know, the rare, Raritan and uh, the fighting back and forth. So it was really interesting to, to, to hear how they just kind of went up and down that east coast in a lot of these places that you know I would go and <laughs> watch bands play in were scenes of uh, revolutionary type of uh, conflict. So that's, uh, that, that's cool. And then they're not. They can't all be always be great, Mossy. But you know, so you know when you turn on. So, for example, I turned on Netflix, and they have recommendations that pop up. And if I'm not going to specifically watch something, chances are I'm going to look at what they recommend. I'm not always going to go for it, but I, I I pull it up, and the first thing that I see is something called uh, the Snowman. And I think, oh, it's you know, it says drama, uh, serial killer type of thing. So I'm I'm into it. Like, right, let me check it out, and. It's a piece of crap, all right? It should be called snow crap, okay? It, and yet, it's one of these things, and I know you know the phenomenon. We only see oftentimes the, the great performances of some of these great actors. And sometimes we don't recognize that they are often off doing other productions and other movies that back in the day we would say it goes straight to video, right? That don't get the fanfare and don't have the money behind it and certainly don't get the accolades that others do. When I look at this, for example... You know, this is a Scandinavian production, and it all happens in, uh, I think it's uh, Sweden or Norway, uh, and, and it's out in the snow. But Michael Fassbender's in it. Val Kilmer is in it. Uh, J.K. Simmons is in it. Toby Jones is in it. Chloe Sav Savigny, or I can't pronounce the last name, is in it. These are all people that you will have seen that have done incredible work. Some are Oscar winners here. And obviously, they were you know, given the money, and this happened in 2017, this uh, this movie, but it, it is a horrible, horrible movie. I cannot uh, tell you how horrible it is, and I, I, I hopefully am steering you away from it, but it just it just goes to show that, you know, if you if you don't have a, a good story and a good script, it doesn't matter how good the actors are, and actors are, you know, they, that's their job, and they will take the money and they will do whatever. And this is not the only one. There are plenty of movies out there where you go, how the hell did that person get involved in that movie? Well, I'll tell you how. They paid him or her a lot of money. They took the money. They, uh, you know, they did what they needed to do, and then they went, uh, they went off the other way. So don't, don't watch The Snowman if you, uh, if you pull up uh, Netflix, and it will recommend that you watch it. So horrible, horrible. Uh, should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. Because we have another special guest, another week with, uh, with special guests. We have the great Doug McIntyre. And so let, let's not mess around. Let's just get right to him, shall we? All right. Okay, without further ado, let's uh, welcome in the great Doug McIntyre to talk all things on and off the field when it comes to American soccer and 
and beyond. There he is. There's his beautiful face shining and, and a shiny gold microphone from parts unknown right now. The great Doug McIntyre. Welcome back to the uh, State of the uh, the Union. All right, Doug, let's get right into it here. We we live in interesting times, shall we say, when it comes to the uh, U.S. men's national team. As we know, in a few days from now, they were playing a, a game against Mexico. I, I think I tweeted out uh, this morning that, you know, there's what, 1,200 days until the 2026 Men's World Cup. There's a you know, there's 90 days until the Gold Cup. There's a couple days until this Mexico game. So things are happening, but uh, they still have not filled these positions. Uh, whether it is the Ernie Stewart role as the sporting director over all the national teams, whether it's the Brian McBride role as the GM of the national team, or obviously the coach Anthony Hudson in an interim capacity right now. Right, just take us through quick. Uh, have I missed something? Where are we? Are we in stasis right now when it comes to the U.S. men's national team? No, I don't. I don't. Hi, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. Um, no, I don't think you missed anything. I don't know how quick. You know, quick is the word here, right? Like yep. we're we're months after Ernie Stewart left his position, um, and still, you know, radio silence from U.S. soccer. We haven't heard much coming out of there. They're they're keeping the the information close to the chest. Um, there's been a few leaks, mostly people that don't want the sporting uh, director job. And uh, and that's the first, you know, that's the first one that has to be filled, I think, before uh, before we get to the coach. But, you know, the, the clock is ticking, Lexi. So, um, you know, it's it's something where I think we U.S. soccer's timeline is to name a coach before the Women's World Cup. That begins in July. Again, we're you know, we're into into late April now. And, um, you know, talking to JT Batson last month end of last month, just before the U.S. played. Uh, El Salvador in the uh, in the Nations League, he said that that timeline is still in place. But something interesting that I that I learned is that um, part of the holdup might be that the the folks they're looking uh, at and, and the interview process has been ongoing. Um, they're they're whittling down the group. Um, this could be a situation where the holdup is because the person or persons they're interested in are still under contract. So there's been a few. Uh, a few folks that whose names have come up, Aguchi Anyebu, which which I reported, um, a guy you played with, Lexi Tabramos, is another name that I've heard uh, express interest in this job. Uh, I think the same with with Anyebu. These are guys that could be signed right now if U.S. Soccer wanted to. So you know, reading the the tea leaves, it makes me think that um, that this is that this position is going to be filled by someone that has a job. And we've seen um, with some of the other names that are out there, Mike Jacobs, um, Ernst Tanner, Peter Vermees. Um, these are all folks that are currently in positions and in theory would have to get out of a contract in order to take this U.S. soccer job um, before July. So I think that's that's part of the holdup. There's no reason to think that it's going to go any longer than that at this stage. Um, but there was also some optimism, you know, a month, a month, even two months ago that it could happen a lot sooner than that. And obviously that hasn't happened yet. Well, hold on. Is, is it your understanding that both of those positions, the sporting director that we know uh, Ernie Stewart held, uh, which was responsible responsible for all of the national teams and the yeah. GM? Because uh, we know that when Kate Margrath came in as the GM specifically of the, of the women's side, is there going to be a consolidation or a separation of those two? Will both of those jobs still exist, do you think, come the summer, the sporting director and a GM for the men's national team, and then obviously a coach for the national team? Yeah, I don't think so, Lexi. Okay. I mean, again, U.S. soccer has not confirmed this, but again, the writing is on the wall. I don't think the GM position is going to is going to be something on the men's side that, that there is. Uh, and, if, and if there is, it might look different. So I, I, I don't, you know, obviously Brian McBride um, you know, didn't leave to take another job. His contract was was not re renewed. He actually signed a one month extension um, to get them through the January camp. 
Um, and he's gone now. So that, you know, there's no reason he couldn't have been extended if he, if he wanted to stay, which by all accounts, he, he, he seemed to, to want to stay. So I don't think we're going to have a GM on the men's side um, come the summer. But but obviously, again, the sporting director is the job that gets filled first. And I think they're working through through all those things. But uh, yeah, I, okay. I don't I, I think there will not be a GM on the men's side. That's right. my that's my feeling. Uh, Doug, two part question. I'm going to put you on the spot here based on what you've been able to gather. Had the Burhalter Reina Mishagas not occurred, would Greg Burhalter have been retained as the U.S. coach? And in light of everything that's gone on, do you think there's any chance Greg Burhalter is rehired? That's two questions, Bossy, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> good to see you, man. Yeah, so I think to answer the first question, Greg Burhalter would have been back if this hadn't happened. I mean, before they left, before the U.S. left Qatar, there were rumblings that that there had been informal conversations. Um, about retaining him. And um, our friend Jeff Carlisle at ESPN reported after the US, uh, or, or, you know, after that, that, that those, um, you know, those conversations had taken place, even in a more uh, formal basis, but, you know, still very early on in the process. And then the whole uh, Raina Berhalter stuff came out. And, and obviously, that put a pause on things. Um, and to answer your second question, Wasi, you know, I was with you guys where, you know, as much as US soccer has said that, that Greg Berhalter remains a candidate. They've said that repeatedly. They said that, um, you know, but, uh, pending the outcome of the independent investigation that was conducted, um, that, you know, if he, if his name was cleared, essentially there was no other things that it was found in that, uh, report that he would remain a candidate. And, and indeed when it came out, they said, yes, he, he still is in the mix. Um, so I, I disagree. I, I, I think that it's, it was very unlikely at that point, as much as they want to say he's still in the running, that that he would be retained. The more time goes on and the more you have people like Christian Pulisic come out and say, you know, we, we think this was unfair, that we think Greg did a good job. I just wonder if potentially there, you know, behind the scenes, if there are enough of those conversations going on, if the high profile players on this team, you know, talk to the new sporting director and say, look, we really believe that this is the right guy for the job. Not that the, the new sporting director is going to make decisions based solely on what players say, but I think that having that input is going to be important. Um, I still think it's incredibly unlikely. I, I really do. I think that um, JT Batson in particular doesn't want that sort of baggage going forward, and I, I understand that. Um, but I'm, I think the door is open a little bit more than it was, say, you know, two months ago. Now, you recently put together a list for Fox Sports of potential front office candidates, everyone from John Thorington to Oliver Bierhoff. Let's say you, Doug McIntyre, were hired as the general manager and you got to pick the next coach. Who would be your ideal choice? Yeah, I love these questions. Again, I, I've sort of, you know, based my entire career on, you know, my opinion doesn't matter. I'm trying to figure out what the people whose opinions matter are thinking are, are doing. Um, but I'll play, I'll play the sporting director for a second. I think it's Jesse Marsh. I think that the fact that he's available, you look at his, um, you know, his pedigree, the, the places he's, he's coached, he's a modern coach. Um, certainly not so much success at Leeds United and, and RB Leipzig his last two jobs. That is concerning. I think there are legitimate concerns about his playing style. If he's too rigid, if he can be adaptable, if he can be pragmatic, he's a romantic, as Alexi always uh, says, and he's he's very married to that sort of high press Red Bull system. It's, he's used it everywhere. He's um, and even when things haven't gone well, he's stuck with it. So um, I wonder about that, but as we know, very charismatic guy. I think if he gets into a room and, and he's asked that question, he'll be able to explain why it's something that the, the U.S. soccer shouldn't worry about. 
Um, and again, availability, uh, the, the best availability is, or ability is availability. And, and he's, you know, he's unattached at the moment. And we know, and I know you guys have talked about it, that, you know, he turned down the Southampton job, linked to the Leicester job, didn't take that, which, like you said on the last pod, Masi, um, seemed to be a much better situation than, than the Southampton job in, in particular. And he still doesn't end up there. So I, we, he's on record saying he, he would love the opportunity to coach his home country on home soil in the World Cup in 2026. And as long as he's available, he's the front runner for me. You know, this stasis, it makes it, it, makes it challenging and, and difficult to a certain extent to, to assess the team. And, and look, we have a U.S.-Mexico game coming up in a couple of days, and it's our job to, you know, to, 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 to look and to assess and to have our opinions on it. But, you know, I was with uh, Anthony Hudson at the, uh, at the Gold Cup draw, and it, it, you could even see in his eyes that, yes, this is an opportunity, but it, it, it's... It's an artificial type of moment for for everybody. How much are you looking, for example, at this Mexico game in a couple of a couple of days, and then even the Gold Cup, because it might not even done be done by the uh, the Gold Cup. And how much stock should we put into who's getting called in, how well they play, the any type of progress that you see, if it's all going to potentially be blown up later on in the summer when these hires are made? Yeah, I don't put too much stock into it. Um, you look at the game on Wednesday against Mexico. Uh, it's funny, folks online calling it uh, El, El Cachico. We know that it's <laughs> going to sell out. Uh, it's that that wonderful stadium in, in Glendale. U.S.-Mexico games are always entertaining. They're always fun to watch. It's, it's almost like LAFC, Galaxy. You know, it doesn't matter what the stakes uh, are, whether, you know, whether it's a, a, a knockout game or, or it's a friendly. These games are intense. It's a great opportunity for young players in the U.S. player pool um, to, to show what they, they have to put themselves in the running for the gold cup. But to your point, Alexi, yeah. The fact that we don't know who the coach is, I mean, does any of this, uh, this matter come September, October, when we all think that a new coach will be in place? I'm not so sure, but you know, you players, they get called in. It's an, it's a national team game. Um, you, you go and you put your best fet, foot forward, you know, Brandon Vasquez, for instance, scores a hat trick. That's something that the new coach is, uh, is going to look at when he's considering uh, calling him up in the future. So, you know, these, these are still, um, you know, this is still a game that I think matters, um, but not as much as it would if, if we knew who the, who the head coach uh, for the next three, three odd years is going is to be. Uh, Doug, one more newsy item I have to ask you about. What have you been able to ascertain regarding Folarin Balogun? We know he yeah. flew to Orlando when the U.S. was playing El Salvador there. He evidently met with the U.S. coaching staff. How did those conversations go? How likely is it that he ultimately chooses the U.S.? It's a really interesting one, Masi. Um, there's there's a few things here. So I, I thought it was very interesting that uh, players, you know, when asked about Balogun during the March camp, um, that you know, by all, all accounts, he he came down to and, and, met, and met with folks. Um, you know, Matt Turner, the guy saying that if 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 this guy, if any player is going to join our team, it has to be for the right reasons. Their heart has to be in it. Um, so I, I think that's interesting because even Balogun's comments have sounded more like. You know, he's he's focused on his career and on the, the fact that he didn't get the opportunity with England senior team. Um, you know, he's obviously been a part of their, their 21s. But, you know, I don't think it was coincidental that he left England's 21 camp when um, Marcus Rashford is uh, withdraws from the senior England team. And and um, and Gareth Southgate decides there's not going to be a, a replacement uh, for, for him. This is a guy that's scoring left and right in, in the French League. Um, you know, probably I'm sure he thinks he's earned earned a call up. And uh, he has to know what the striker situation is for the U.S. team, that there's an opening there potentially. 
um, and that uh, he could be playing in, in big time games. There's a Copa America um, next summer that, you know, then he could be a starting, a starting striker for the, for the U S team, for a team that's already qualified for the world cup, all those things. It's certainly a great opportunity, but, um, and, and I, and I do think that the U S has done absolutely everything it possibly can to convince this guy to recruit this guy. Uh, but again, you don't want to go too far because it, it, again, it has to come from, from the guy. He has to want to, you know, be willing to, you know, go play, uh, a nation's league game in, in Grenada, which the U S team did, did last month. There's a lot more to playing for the U S men's national team than there is, um, you know, just suiting up for world cup games or Copa America games or even gold cup games. So um, by all accounts, it looks like, you know, that, that there's a real chance that, that the U S um, lands this player. But I also, I mean, part of me in the back of my mind, I wonder if, if, if Balogun is trying to use the U S as leverage to increase his stock, increase his standing on the England side. And, and that's a tricky thing. That's something that could end up rubbing, both both national teams, both fan bases the wrong way. But this is a quality player and he is U.S. eligible and the U.S. is doing the right thing by, you know, pulling out the stops to see if, if he'll he'll commit to the program because certainly he's a player um, that can help them in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, you, you want the player to meet you halfway. Uh, look, we've talked yeah. about uh, 2026 and that certainly is going to be a, a focal point. But this summer, there's all sorts of stuff going on. I know you're going to join us down in uh, in Australia and New Zealand for uh, the the historic attempt from the U.S. Women's National Team to win three World Cups in a row, something unprecedented and never been done men's or women's side. And then, obviously, we mentioned the uh, the Gold Cup. Before we move on to the uh, to the women's side, uh, the you know players like Gio Reyna, players players like Christian Pulisic, players like Ricardo Pepe. This summer may be interesting for them. What are you hearing out there about potential movement and some of the other things that we should be keeping in mind that go beyond the actual 90 minutes of seeing these players play for the U.S. men's national team in friendlies and or Gold Cups? Yeah, I think it's a little early. Lexi, we're still obviously in, in April, but there are going to be a number of, of U.S. Uh, important U.S. players on the move over the summer. Weston McKenney, guy who's on loan with Leeds, um, you know, he's, he's going to go back to Juventus. You would you would think, does he stay there? Certainly, the uh, Juventus was was willing to to let him leave halfway through the season and and go on loan. Um, uh, Pulisic, I think we all think is going to be on, on the move. Uh, uh, Gio Reyna, even though he scored a, a really good goal for, for Dortmund over the weekend, we've seen his playing time almost evaporate with, with them. So um, I think there's there are going to be lots of moves. Serginho Dest, um, who you guys spoke about on the on the last pod, very clear that he's not in Milan's plans. He, he's on loan there, obviously was allowed to, to come in for this this friendly, which isn't a good look. I agree with you, uh, Masi, um, but Barcelona is his parent club. Um, as long as Xavi's the coach there, he does not seem to be in their plans either. So um, these are these are all key players, automatic starters. The U.S. guys that started at the World Cup, uh, and I even think you could see someone like uh, Anthony Robinson, a guy who was also excellent at the World Cup. He's had a very very good season at Fulham. He's he's a left back. It's not just the U.S. men's national team that uh, has struggled filling that position over the years. It's it's a it's a position that there's there's not a lot of great ones out out there in the world. He was linked uh, and actually had a transfer um, to AC Milan a few years ago, fall through because he had a heart ailment. And if that hadn't happened, he, he would have been there. So I think that's a guy that we could see, uh, move on to bigger and better things that are, again, a very good season in the Premier League this year. So, um, we'll, we'll see a bunch of, of intrigue, uh, transfer speculation as we always do. Uh, but I think even more so this, this summer, uh, for us uh, players than we have in years past. Uh, one last men's question from me, then we can pivot to the women. What did you hear about the dynamic between Gio Reyna and his teammates during that last U.S. camp? 
was he welcomed back with open arms? Or as you mentioned, there are players like Christian Pulisic who are big fans of Greg Berhalter. So are there still some fences yeah. that need to be mended there? I think I think it's a fair question, Masi. It's something where I think everyone was on their best behavior. Gio Reyna certainly um, was. In, and, you know, as you've said many, many times, Alexi, players want to win. And everyone knows how good a player Gio Reyna is. And, and he will help this team. And, and that buys you a lot of slack. I mean, I, I am sure th- and I know that some U.S. players are, are still not not happy about what went on in Qatar uh, with GRA at all. They 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 really you know, that that's something that shouldn't happen um, at that level. I mean, Christian Pulisic has said that publicly, um, you know, didn't mention GRA by name, but um, you, you could tell from his comments that there there's still you know, there's still some baggage there. Um, but I don't think it's anything insurmountable. Um, and by you know, I, I haven't heard that there were any issues whatsoever at the last camp. Um, Gio Reyna came in, you know, he, he played in both games, started the second game. Um, I think for him getting on the field and getting back with the team was really important. Didn't have his best two games, but um, just sort of putting putting the pass behind him. And look, some of the stuff that happened w- was not Gio Reyna's fault. I mean, he's, he's not responsible for the, the behavior of his, of his parents. But, you know, this is a black mark on him for a long time. It will be at club level. Um, it will be with the national team. And it's just something that over time, you know, that that's something that's going to have to be re- repaired and, you know, still a young player. And I think that everyone's going to get over it. Um, but, I, you know, and I don't expect any lingering bad feelings, um, but there is, I think there's still a wariness uh, a little bit on, on both sides and, and will be um, for at least, at least through this summer. All right. Uh, let's pivot to the, uh, the women's side and uh, the U S women's national team uh, for a few more questions before we let you go. And we really thank you for your, uh, for your time here. As I mentioned, you'll be down with us uh, covering the women's world cup down in Australia and uh, New Zealand. Interesting moment for Vladko Andonovsky and company right now, as they, you know, get ready one more game before the actual world cup. And we hear, and we saw the return of Julie Ertz. Where do you think this U.S. women's team is right now relative to that feat of possibly winning uh, three three in a row? I mean, we we put them on up on a pedestal and we have very high expectations, and I think fairly so given their history and the talent and the depth that they have. And that depth certainly is being uh, tested now with, uh, you know, with um, uh, with Swanson out up top. But just in, in totality right now, where, where are you sensing this team is right now a few months away from the World Cup? Yeah, I think the big the big question mark is in, in the attack. It certainly was Swanson out. I mean, the two games against Ireland, they score um, two goals from the run of play. The second one was a cross. It wasn't a shot. It's a goalkeeper's error. It, it goes in in the in the net. And you know, Ireland is not a team that's going to challenge the U.S. for the for the world title. They're they're at the World Cup. They're a good team. I was very impressed by by them, by the way. Um, but that's not. You know, you you we've come to expect the U.S. to to beat teams like that by multiple goals. And I know, again, you know, listen to the interview with Valley Wagner. The women's game has changed. Maybe that's on on you know us looking at history and how dominant this U.S. team has been over the years. They're not going to blow everyone out all the time. It's still going to happen, but it's not going to be something that that happens every game. That said, I I I like their chances. I really do. And you know, I went into the last World Cup in France. I was there as well, and the U.S. had lost to France. Um, who was seen at, as their their biggest uh, rival and, and challenger for the trophy? They lost to him earlier that year. Um, we looked at how the bracket played out. We knew there was going to be that that big uh, quarterfinal match against France in Paris, and I thought, you know, I, I think they're not going to win this one. And of course, they did. And I'm not going to make that mistake twice. I mean, I think the U.S. team 
is they're so incredibly deep. And for me, they're they're even deeper than they were four years ago. You've seen the likes of Naomi uh, Gurma. You've seen Sophia Smith, who's a, established herself as a automatic starter for this team, you know, was, wasn't around, hadn't made her debut this time four years ago. Um, you look at Trinity Rodman, you look at, um, you know, you look at the depth that they have. And it's just really hard for me to think that there's any team that can come close to matching uh, that depth. I think the group is really interesting. The fact that they have the Netherlands uh, in the group they played in the second game, a rematch of the last final, um, that could get interesting because if the Netherlands win that game and they're, they're capable, and of course, just because you have a slip up in the group stage doesn't mean you can't go on to win a World Cup. We've seen that on the men's side time and time again through the years. Um, but if the U.S. doesn't finish first in that group, I think if they tie with goal difference, they're, they're, they would they would have the tiebreaker. I, I think they're going to score more goals uh, than, than the Netherlands uh, are on Portugal, on Vietnam. But that game, if, if the U.S. loses that game and they end up finishing second in the group, then I think things get a bit more tricky um, for them, but I, I I have to say I really do I really do like their chances. I think there's a, this young generation of players that's coming up, led by Sophia S- Smith, and and it's really unfortunate for Mallory Swanson because she was going to be a breakout star. This was going to be her moment where she's a household name in the U.S. and beyond. The way Alex Morgan was after uh, the World Cup in 2011. Um, it, so th- so that part's un- unfortunate. But if any team in the world is able to uh, you know, get over a, a loss like that. It's this U.S. team, and it's more opportunities for uh, some other incredibly talented players to make their mark. Is this is Julie Ertz starting come the World Cup? That yes. first game of the World Cup. Yes, okay. got it. Yes, Mossy, I know Mossy's got a, a, a bone to pick with you. Uh, Doug, you recently put together for a Fox Sports a uh, list of 25 reasons to be excited for the Women's World Cup, and one of them was Germany as an underdog. Germany yeah. is ranked number two in the world. They were <laughs> yeah. runners up at the Euros. They've won two Women's yeah. World Cups. And what's amusing about this is prior to the last Men's World Cup, you also identified Germany as your dark yes. horse. You were ridiculed for that. It almost destroyed your career. And yet you're going down this well again. What is it with you and Germany as an underdog? It's funny. I think Germany, they're so efficient and they're so boring. And I know I'm playing into some stereotypes here, but you forget about them sometimes. You forget how good they are. I mean, everyone talking on the women's side, like you look at you look at um, you know the drama that, that they've had on the field. Some other teams as well. Canada, the defending Olympic champion, um, you know, rival for the U.S. North American rival. Um, so when you're you're talking about the teams that can challenge the U.S. for the title, it just seems to me that nobody's talking about Germany, and it's that's just ridiculous to me because to your point, they're you know historically they are the U.S. women's national team of the Olympic in particular. Their record in the European Championships, I mean, they've won eight titles more than anybody else. Um, and and to me, they're the, the biggest threat for the U.S. team um, this year. And no one's no one's mentioning them. No one's no one's talking about them. Um, I, I, you know, we've heard England um, that, that this is their time. And of course, Germany and England played in the Euros and, and um, you know, England was able to, 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 to get through. But, um, you know, for me, forget England. Germany, I think, is the team that the U.S. really needs to be worried about, not, not taking anything away from. From England, although I, I think they are still unproven at the at the at the top level, um, and you know there's a big difference between playing England in a friendly at Wembley and playing them in the World Cup. Of course, the U.S. lost to England uh, last uh, last October in a friendly over there. Um, but yes, so Germany uh, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. They're a really good team. They're one of the favorites to win this World Cup, and I'm surprised that we haven't heard more about them compared to some of the other uh, title contenders uh, that, that could stop this historic. Uh, achievement by the U.S. this summer. 
All right. Well, despite Mossy's uh, protestations uh, and just complete uh, disgust at at least one of the 25 things, uh, reasons to be excited about for the Women's World at Cup, you, you should check out uh, Doug's, uh, Doug's article with the 25, according to Mossy, 24, at least good reasons to be excited about the uh, Women's World Cup. Before I let you go, I asked this of, uh, of the actor Brendan Hunt um, a couple weeks ago when we had him on the show. I always am interested uh, talking to people like yourself that have been around and have seen the sport grow on and off the field and, you know, take different directions, good, bad, up, down, stuff like that. What is, in, in, and, and again, you're going to have to give your opinion here. I know you like to say uh, my job's to get other people's opinions to an analyze that, but you're going to have to give your opinion here. What is the best thing about the American soccer fan community and what is the worst thing? Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, I, you know, can I give the same answer for both? Is that a, is yeah, that a sure. Absolutely. No, it's not yeah. a but explain I yourself. It, yeah, for sure. So I, I think that the, the passion of the U S fan is really interesting to me because you have a group that is there, there is a, there is an insecurity guys. I, I think that goes back a long way of wanting to be um, at the level of other, you know, other countries around the world. We know that we know how much progress the sport has made in the U.S. over the last 30 odd years. Um, but we also know how, how far it still has to go. So there's this weird thing where, you know, U.S. fans are very proud of, of that progress, um, but they also want more. And, and it sort of manifests manifests itself in, you know, complaining about every little thing, um, you know, complaining about whoever the coach of the national team is, They're, you know, and, and by the way, like I don't whoever becomes the coach of the team, whether it's, you know, Jose Mourinho or Patrick Bear or Jesse Marsh or Jim, Jim Curtin, um, they're going to get slaughtered online on a weekly basis. And that's, you know, that's normal. I think that that's something we see uh, in, in quote unquote, real soccer countries around the world. And I think the U S is getting, is getting closer to that, but it is, it is sort of annoying to me how toxic it can be um, because, because there has been so much progress and I understand everyone wants to take the next step and everyone wants to, um, you know, to see the sport reach its potential. And, and I, and I think it will eventually, um, but the, the negativity sometimes, um, is, is a little off-putting, you know, I, I'm, I try to be an optimistic person in life and, um, and, and so to, to see every, every little thing poo-pooed all the time, maybe I, you know, spend too much time online, but, um, you know, that, that's, that, that could be annoying. I think, I think people need to have a little bit more perspective sometimes, but I do admire, I do admire the passion and, and it cuts both ways. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my opinion. I, I hope I answered that. that no, you did. No, it's, actually, it's a great answer. Uh, and, I, and I completely agree with a lot of things you said. I, I think people online uh, and, and others, you know, even to your face would would say that, uh, you know, one person's toxicity is another person's passion, as you as you mentioned. And so maybe it's somewhere in, in the middle in the middle there. Uh, you know, the great Doug McIntyre, thank you so much for coming on. I know there was some some back and forth and some concern as to, you know, Mossy was calling you out about not coming on the show and that. And you made it very, very clear that you are completely open to coming on the show. And that's why we wanted to have you on for a number of different reasons, including that and obviously uh, your great work that you do on a consistent basis when it comes to all the soccer here at, at Fox. And you will continue to do as we get closer and closer to uh, this summer and Major League Soccer and the Gold Cup. And as we mentioned, the uh, Women's World Cup. So uh, hopefully at some point later on this summer, we will see you in person, my friend. Go back and do the great work that you uh, that you are doing. And we look forward to reading all of it as it comes out uh, throughout the summer and throughout the years. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me, guys. And thanks for putting that on the record, Lexi. Uh, <laughs> there can be no, no denying it uh, from here on out. So anytime. Appreciate it. 
All right. Thanks again to uh, Doug McIntyre for all of his incredible knowledge. And we look forward to uh, speaking to him again soon. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got all sorts of MLS action that's happening and European action that has happened and is going to happen and all sorts of stuff that we uh, that we need to talk about. Don't go ahead. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Okay, welcome back. All right, let's take a trip around all the domestic soccer that is going on. Let's start... uh... Let's start with uh, some MLS stuff, right? Shall we, Mossy? St. Louis back on track. Back, baby. I told you they would be back. After two straight defeats, they hammer Cincinnati 5-1. Stroud and Joe Kinney among the goal scorers. Yeah, there was this uh, two-hour weather break. And, uh, you know, that, that can play, you know, with your mind uh, for any type of play. You're waiting around. But obviously it didn't affect... First off, the fans in St. Louis, they they were there in force and they waited around to see their beloved uh, team and the team rewarded them and came out and put a whooping on Cincinnati. And by the way, this is, you know, a Cincinnati team that's sitting up there at the top. And uh, while we have talked about how they've grinded out results, this was this was done. And again, somebody asked me earlier today about St. Louis and if this is sustainable. Well. First off, you have to define what this is. Despite what you may read or what people tell you, it's not as if St. Louis has reinvented the wheel. But they do what they do very, very well. All right, The pressing is uh, consistent. It is confident. And ultimately, it is effective. Uh, The designated players have come to play and are providing on a consistent basis and the star name players that they have. And then the supporting cast, you know, you mentioned Stroud or others, are chipping in and doing well. And that is the recipe for, at the very least, a competitive team. I think they're already more than a competitive team. I do think that this is sustainable in that they are going to you know, be involved and be competitive throughout. I don't think that they are an elite team, and I don't think that it's sustainable in terms of them staying at, at, the, uh, at the top of the league for, for the entire regular season. But this is not, a, this is not an anomaly. This is not just a, oh my goodness, this is an expansion team. Nobody knows how to, uh, how, to, uh, how to deal with it. And they had that little blip with two losses in a row, and they come right back against a very, very good Cincinnati team because that was the other thing. It's like, well, wait till they actually play somebody that's going to know what they are, are about. But um, they're not missing a beat. And it's, it's great to see from a soccer perspective and from a cultural perspective what it means to St. Uh, to St. Louis. On the Cincinnati front, can I put my Brazilian hat on Absolutely. for one second? It was announced in the last few days that Cincinnati has agreed a deal to sell Brenner to Udinese. So he will be off to Italy when the transfer window in Europe opens in the summer. A couple thoughts here. I do wonder what this means for Brandon Vasquez because he is also attracting interest, Borussia Mönchengladbach, among others. Uh, But I wonder, would they sell both Brenner and Vasquez? That, to me, is then waving a white flag on a season that looks quite promising. So I wonder if they would... It's, Part with both. Well, it's it's hard because on the one hand, 
you want to have proof, proof of concept. You want to establish that pathway that shines as a beacon for others that are potentially wanting to come and use it as a platform to show their wares and then to go on to, quote unquote, bigger and better things. But you also have a responsibility to the people that are paying money to your club to see the team. And if if that team that is marketed and sold and promised then is blown up in the middle of the season, I, I think that that, you know, that can cause problems. And look, this is not anything new. This is a balance that MLS teams have to, you know, have to have to figure uh, have to figure out, because if you do have that bird in the hand and from a practical perspective, there is money out there to be had that then theoretically doesn't always work. But theoretically, you can then pour in and, you know, restock. You kind of have to do it because who knows injuries or form and all that kind of stuff. But if it comes along this summer, I think they're going to do it. You know, we talk about the strategy of MLS teams signing young South American players and then serving as that bridge to Europe. And I'm sure in some quarters, Brenner will be held up as another successful execution of that strategy. But I don't know. It reminds me of in college basketball, coaches love to tout how many players they put in the NBA. But there are some cases where a hotshot recruit comes in. He never buys into being in college and he leaves at the first opportunity and you come out of it with a bad feeling. I am uniquely qualified to talk about this because Michigan's had three of those guys in the last two years and Caleb Houston, Musa Diabate and Jed Howard. But Brenner gives off that vibe to me. He could have gone straight to Europe from Sao Paulo. His agents talked him into coming to MLS. From the moment he arrived, I felt like he regretted it. He never bought in. He couldn't wait to go to Europe. And he played just well enough to get his move, but I don't think he was any sort of transformative player in MLS. Um, But wait, but wait, the amount of money that he would have garnered in a transfer fee at that point that he left Brazil, you don't think it's that it's that much of a difference? They're selling Cincinnati are selling him for less money than they spent. And I think he's going to about the same level of club for about the same amount of money that he would have gone for had he gone straight from Sao Paulo to Europe. And they can't all work out. We all understand that, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a disaster, right. but I just think it shouldn't be held up as some great success story. Uh, I'll be curious to see what the reaction is when that move sure. actually goes down That's and what people say about it. That's fair. Uh, elsewhere, you know the old adage that you throw out the records in rivalry games? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that was on display in Portland because uh, Seattle were flying. They went in there brimming with confidence. Portland were struggling. And lo and behold, Portland with a 4-1 win over Seattle. Seattle actually led 1-0 in the second half, thanks to a Raul Rui Diaz goal, but Portland exploded for four goals in the last 20 minutes. Aspria, Fogasa, Nias Godin, Mosquera. So the Timbers get a much-needed big win. I mean, this is a typical type of MLS result. Now, to be fair, Portland has had some, you know, some problems and injuries, and so maybe they weren't as bad as their record showed. But, of course, Portland beats Seattle because MLS as we've talked about time and time again, is rooted in this structure uh, that has manufactured parity. And we have the, the hierarchy that, is, that has happened. But again, it is the most unpredictable league in the world and a place where anyone can win each and every, uh, every game. And I'm not saying there hasn't been a, a separation, but certainly, as I said, relative to everywhere else in the world, uh, that, parody, that parody exists. And I love, I love the fact that that this is a type of league where this can happen. And it's amazing how many people have come up to me and said, that is specifically what they like about following their MLS team and following Major League Soccer. And it, it would apply to USL or, other, or NWSL also, is that it has been manufactured so you do have that opportunity to win. And you do have that, every season you have that hope. 
that doesn't always you know work out, but at least you have that hope as opposed to others where you know exactly what your lot in life is when it uh, when it comes to it. I I, uh, I want to read you Smetcher's quote. We love love Brian Smetcher here on the uh, State of the Union, and I know he listens. Um, he said it after the game. He said it doesn't feel like a rivalry. After the game, some of our staff members. There's everybody talking and laughing. It's like another loss. It's not another loss. It's against the Timbers. We have to get back this. All of us have to get back to understanding that this is a rivalry. So Schmetz are not happy with the result, nor, you know, nor should he be, because they came in flying. They were you know, arguably one of the best teams in, in the league, and they went into, as I said, it might not be a, a fair characterization, but just on, on record, one of the poorest teams when it comes uh, when it comes to Portland and Portland smashed them and so maybe this is a punch in the face that the Seattle team kind of needed and I think that's probably how Brian is going to use this going forward uh, Columbus New England entertaining game that confirmed that these are both very good teams New England led one nil late and then Columbus equalized 90 plus eight so it finished one one Bruce Arena not happy with the amount of stoppage time speaking of pissed off coaches hey there's Bruce Arena yeah, okay, I get it. Listen, you're you're hanging on, you have a red card, and so this is, you know, your opportunity to say, hey, we we, we went and stole one, uh, uh, a, a three points in in a very difficult environment in Columbus against a very, very good team, and Columbus just came back and back and back. They even had a goal called back, and then they still came back and found a way ultimately and to, you know, to salvage that point. And if, if you would ask Bruce Arena, I'll give you 1-1 before the game, of course he would have said yes, no problem. But the way that the game came and there was on offer that opportunity to get three points. And then, you know, look, the timing issues in soccer, are, we know that they it is still so subjective that any coach, and certainly a legendary coach that has been in the game long enough, can understand that there's there's no way to tell exactly what it is. And ultimately it is left to one person with that watch. And yes, they take, in, uh, they take into account substitutions and goals and all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's arbitrary. And it, it is, like I said, subjective to this human being. Just defend better. I mean, you've been defending that entire time. Figure out a way to defend in that last couple of seconds and don't let that happen. And so, you know, Bruce Arena, because of the big personality that he is, when he gets angry and he screams and yells, there's plenty of people that eat that up, including myself. I love it when Bruce Arena screams and yells. Not because he's necessarily right. It's just fun to see him get pissed off about, uh, about things. And if you're a Revolution fan, I think, yes, there's a part of you that says, I completely agree. We, we should feel aggrieved for not having been given that opportunity and the, the clock or the referee screwed us here. But just get on with it and defend better. Uh, we have an Ask Alexi question on who is the greatest U.S. men's national team manager. So I'll be curious to see if you evoke Bruce Arena in that conversation we'll as well. we'll uh, San Jose, 3-0 win over SKC, Espinosa and Obobasi twice. But the story here is SKC. Yep. Just two goals in their first eight games. That's a MLS record for futility. I know you love Peter Vermes. I have a lot of time for him as well. But some people are wondering, they're making the Arsene Wenger Arsenal comparison also a legendary coach who perhaps overstayed his welcome. Yep. Uh, what do you make of the Vermi situation right now? We, we mentioned that because of his longevity and because of his quality, let's be honest, which is why he has that longevity, he was going to be given as long a leash as there is. 
And I think that that's fair and right to do for someone like that. And I only talk about Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately and everything? But, you know, this is a this is a legend when it comes to Kansas City and not just the game, but obviously the club. And he has built it and has amassed incredible amount of power. But that only gets you so far. And yes, I think that it is a good type of parallel talking about someone like Arsene Wenger, where that leash eventually it runs out. And this is this is a bad look. Now he just signed a new deal, and he certainly there there's a kind of a uh, soft landing type of situation that could happen here, where he could step back into you know a sporting director type of role, and maybe fresh eyes and a fresh approach is exactly what this team needs. But they haven't responded, and now you've been given chances that are fair to who you are, and more chances than many others would have been given. And so, yeah. By the way, this doesn't change my opinion about the quality of Peter Vermes. But as a head coach in this situation, in this moment for this team, this is a failure. And it is on, there's only one person, and it is on Peter Vermes right now. So, yeah, I mean, this is, you just, you keep thinking they're going to come out of this. They're going to find a way out, uh, out. They can't find their way out. And I don't know if they are going to. And finally, El Trafico, LAFC, 3-2 winners at Dignity Health Sports Park. Vela scores twice. Holling's head on target as well. Boyd and Delgado got the Galaxy goals. The Galaxy gave a decent account of themselves, but still winless after seven games, and they suffered their first ever home defeat to LAFC. Yeah, so it, if the Galaxy had just been, you know, in it and, and winning games and still, you know, in playoff contention and all, all that, it, this... This is context. Greg Vanny loves to talk about context, right? <laughs> so you would have said, hey, this was a really good game and you know, a, a better team won, but they, the Galaxy gave a good account of themselves. Galaxy doesn't need moral victories. The Galaxy doesn't need to say, hey, we played well. Hey, we gave them a game. Galaxy doesn't need that. The Galaxy needs what Cincinnati had been doing to just grind out and find a way to get a win. It can be as ugly as you possibly want. By the way, I went to the, uh, I went to the game, so I actually saw the, uh, the environment. A lot of LAFC fans, not just in the actual section, but sprinkled out throughout the uh, Dignity Health there, there were a lot of LAFC fans. And we know that the protest continues to go on. The, uh, the banners were flying around constantly of Klein out, uh, Karofsky out, hashtagging it and doing all that kind of stuff. And... It was obvious that something was missing from an organized supporters uh, fan group standpoint in that the fan groups for the Galaxy were not there. And therefore, it wasn't on cue and it wasn't organized and it certainly wasn't loud. And LAFC absolutely drowned them out. And then the actual play play on the field. Uh, Ricky Pouge, he's a good player. Dare I say a great player? He is a but he is a man out of time in that as good as he is, he is wrong for this team. He's, he's too good for what this LA Galaxy team is. And that is also, by the way, on the leadership. To bring in someone like this, unless you're going to surround him with people that are thinking about the game in the same way, not only is it not going to go well, but it actually works against you. The, the types of things that he does and the way that he wants to play is impossible for this Galaxy team uh, to play. And look, your Klinsman is not a great goalkeeper uh, relative to MLS. Um, 
you're starting a, a, a teenager in the back. The Galaxy contrived off their own throw-in, okay, to turn it into not just an opportunity, but ultimately a penalty and a goal for LAFC. Is that on Chris Klein? I mean, and, and, and again, I'm not saying that uh, there, shouldn't be, uh, there shouldn't be changes here, but, you know, scream and yell and protest, th this, is, this is on Greg Vanny. And it wasn't ultimately good enough. And you give Vela a gift, by the way, in the worst possible place that you can put Carlos Vela out there on the right with no pressure on him with his left foot to be able to curl it around. It doesn't matter. And that's not on Klinsman. That's just the reality of how good Carlos Vela, uh, how Carlos Vela is. And then you give them another gift. And so these are just unforced errors and that ultimately lead to a situation where uh, what was bad has only gotten worse. And Chicharito was, was non-existent. And how about that Vanny rant ahead of the match? That was extraordinary. Yeah, I went on uh, the, uh, the Apple show, the uh, 360 show, and um, you know, uh, with uh, the likes of uh, our friend and colleague, uh, Sasha Kleschen, um, and others there. And Sasha earlier had talked about the Greg Vanny situation. And I think he took the words right out of my mouth in that it came off whiny. It came off weak. And I get what he's trying to say. And for those that didn't hear it, it was, you know, a uh, expletive laden uh, pushback at the realities that he and the galaxy have had to face over the last couple of years. And, you know, constantly saying, well, if, if this call had gone our way and the VAR had come in here and if this goal, I mean, that nobody cares. Nobody cares. Your job is to win. Your job as the head coach of the LA Galaxy is to find a way to win. And so you can bring in what you think is context, but even then, it just looked like excuses for why things ultimately didn't go your way. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that aren't legitimate to bring up, but there's plenty of talent, all right? You're not elite, I get it, but there's still plenty of talent to be doing better than you are doing right now. And this is... You know, this this was a result that the Galaxy could ill afford to have, and Greg uh, Greg Vanny in particular. Incidentally, the producer of Apple's 360 show, as you know, is a good friend of mine. He worked <laughs> at Fox for many years. Uh, he was a big fan of your appearance. He texted me some very complimentary really? things. Yeah, I had a good time. You know, we uh, I came on, I uh, I had opened up a bottle of wine, and you know, I was watching them for the hours and hours and hours, and that's not easy for for all of them. Uh, uh, and Kyle um, and Bradley Wright Phillips, and you know. It, everybody just, they work very, very hard on hours and hours and, uh, and hours. And so we had a good time. I'm glad that they, um, uh, that they brought me on and it was obviously to pump up, uh, El Trafico, but also to talk, you know, about, uh, what's, uh, what's going on. And so, yeah, so uh, it, it was a fun day out. Rob Stone joined me yesterday and it was a fun game to go to just to watch if you are a neutral, but if you're a galaxy fan, this is just, this is more of the same. I wonder how much it costs to have one of those planes fly around all day with uh, your signage. In this case, it was Klein out and Karofsky out. What I do you know. think? Thousands of dollars, you think? Depends how long the names are. Karofsky's <laughs> a pretty long name. So you gotta... <laughs> You're paid by the letter? I don't know. All right, what else, Masi? Uh, LAFC fighting on multiple fronts. They're also in the CCL semis. On our last podcast, we mentioned that LAFC and Lyon had been the first two teams to book their place in the semifinals. Then that Wednesday evening, Philadelphia went to Guadalajara 
got a 2-2 draw against Atlas, which meant a 3-2 aggregate triumph. This match ensuring that nobody in Philadelphia will ever complain about VAR again because <laughs> both their goals scored by Carranza were initially waved off. The flag went up and then VAR reviewed it and saw that both were clearly onside. The first one was an embarrassing mistake by the linesman. I mean... Are we done with CONCACAFing? Is it done? Is like that whole thing uh, because of technology and VAR now a thing of the past? I mean, am I going to get sentimental about the times when people used to get screwed by, <laughs> you know, either calls or non-calls or, or stuff that can't be taken back? I don't know. But yeah, it, this, it, it corrected glaring, glaring mistakes, which is what it's there to do. So if you want to live in that wor world where everything is fixed, then okay, we're living in it. And then Thursday evening, Tigres, in their first match under new manager Robert Ciboli, they hammered Motagua 5-0 to complete a 6-0 aggregate triumph. Gignac with two goals in that second leg. Uh, although if you're worried about a new manager bounce, they then promptly drew 0-0 away to Querétaro at the weekend. So all is not right in Tigres' world. But nevertheless, they're off to the semis. So we have one all-Mexican semi, Tigres-Leon, and one all-MLS, Philadelphia-LAFC. The order of the legs determined by teams' performances in the previous rounds. So uh, Tigres will host the first leg, Leon the second leg. Philadelphia will host the first leg, LAFC the second leg. So those are your CCL semis. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about this. And obviously, it's a rematch of MLS Cup. Uh, and also, not arguably, I think the two best teams from last year. And why I'm also excited is that in the interim, oftentimes, you know, you qualify for these tournaments and things can drastically change your fortunes, injuries, uh, selling of players, bringing in of players. And so the teams that you see that are reaping the benefits ultimately months later may look very, very different. I'm excited that two of the great teams from last year are also using that opportunity to be great months later and that type of consistency we don't always um, uh, we don't always see that now i know philly has struggled on the uh, on the domestic front but we've talked about that before and lafc is flying right now so who would you pick in those two i'm still gonna pick lafc yeah i think that they're ultimately uh, a better team yeah i'm going with lafc and tigres which would be a rematch of the 2020 ccl final which lafc led with 15 minutes left and then tigres scored twice to take it i went to that that was in orlando Correct. during the pandemic i was staying down uh in uh in south florida there and i drove up for the game and they were nice enough to let me in and uh <laughs> you know quarantine me away in a in a little sequestered area there and i watched that that crazy, crazy game because it was in the palm of Bob Bradley and LAFC's hand and they pissed it away. We shift to England where there was a major development in the title race this past weekend. First, Manchester City took care of their business on Saturday, 3-1 home win over Leicester. Erlen Holland on target twice. He's now up to 32 Premier League goals, which equals Mo Salah's record for a 38-game season. And that's all-time Premier League, right? Yes. So from the beginning of the Premier League. Well, uh, there... There used to be 42 games, so the record is actually 34. He'll break that too, yeah. but uh, a lot of people frame it as if, uh, because it's now 38 games, they think the, the real record now that he's going for is this 38-game record that Salah Got it. set. I mean, it's, either way, it's incredible. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he breaks Mo Salah's record. They're tied <laughs> right now. I think he will score another <laughs> Premier League goal before the end of the season. I mean, this this game, first off, Leicester City's in trouble, okay? Um, and... Somebody had asked me about Leicester, and, and sometimes we take for granted what they did and that incredible season. But you know, they they built up and they they came up and you know were 
so that they are potentially a yo-yo type of team shouldn't necessarily be a surprise, but they have, you know, for the last less than a decade here, punched above their weight in a sense. Doesn't make it any more palatable or anything what's going on right now. And Man City, this was with a, a smoke and a coffee, and I know it's, it's three to one, but they did the damage early and they were ruthless. They got out, got that lead, and then they sat back, made five changes, and it was... <laughs> it wasn't even a game at a certain point. Then Sunday, Arsenal were away to West Ham, and they looked pretty ruthless themselves early on. They jumped out to a quick 2-0 lead on goals by Jesus and Odegaard. But uh, they somehow fell apart after that. West Ham pulled one back from the penalty spot before halftime. And then early in the second half, Saka missed a penalty that would have restored their two-goal advantage. And Jared Bowen promptly equalized. It ended 2-2. You know, we've talked about this. The math was such that Arsenal didn't necessarily need to implode for City to win the title, but they might just implode <laughs> anyway and make it easier on City. I mean, everyone from Piers Morgan on down from Arsenal fans here were very adamant that you are pissing this away in, in real time as they were watching this, uh, this happen. And when I say this, I mean... I mean the title. And we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the actual numbers and the games in hand and the games against each other. And, you know, you're assuming, and that's a huge assumption still to make, that Man City is going to win out, but they are on the front foot right now. And the way that Arsenal, even, even after the game, the way that they talked, it, I feel like they're trying to convince themselves more so that this is okay and this happens and we will, we will figure this out. But, I mean... This is this is not this is not good from an Arsenal perspective, and who knows? We, uh, we we've said this now, but they might have just pissed us away. Yeah, Arsenal now with a four point lead, but City have a game in hand, and it's going to go to seven because Arsenal are home to Southampton on Friday, a game they should win, and then <laughs> yeah. City play their FA Cup semi final that weekend, so they're off in terms of the Premier League. So Arsenal are probably going to have a seven point lead, and City have two games in hand. So it's going to be a little funky because you're going to look yeah. at the table, and it's going to seem like Arsenal are in good shape, but we're all factoring in that the way City are playing, that they're going to win those games in hand. And so they now have uh, the upper hand if you assume they're going to take care of their business. All right. All right. Anything uh, else? Uh, in Germany, uh, on the topic of teams uh, being flaky in title races, let me get the non-Gio Reyna part out of the way first, <laughs> okay. and, then, and then we can hone in on Gio Reyna. Bayern held to a 1-1 draw at home by Hoffenheim, so that opened the door for Do Dortmund. Had they won their match, they would have been level on points with... Bayern, uh, Dortmund had a 2-0 lead and a man advantage late in the second half against 16th place Stuttgart. They somehow allowed Stuttgart to score twice, but then Dortmund retook the lead in stoppage time. So you think, okay, they're going to get away with it. But then Stuttgart go back down the other way at the death, score again, 3-3 final. So Dortmund remain two points back of Bayern. Let me say this. Uh, the main reason why Bayern Munich have won 10 straight Bundesliga titles is because of how good they are. But it does help that their chief competitor is the flakiest club in world <laughs> football. Even by Dortmund yeah. standards, this was astonishing. This was astonishing. I mean, so much so that like I'm jumping around to different games and, and different leagues uh, on a weekend. But you're you know, you're, I can I can watch multiple screens here or there. But you started to hear what was going on and, and I immediately went to it. And this was in the moment, it, it, it's insane, and yet, to your point, it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that this uh, that this is happening when it comes uh, when it comes to Dortmund. And it, it was nuts. I mean, the only silver lining 
is is the Gio Reyna from a U.S. perspective look, uh, looking at this. But again, this might have been the moment, uh, if you needed a moment, and there have been a couple of them, when Dortmund said, no, no, it's okay. You guys can go on and win. We, we, we knocked on the door a little bit, but there's nobody home, so we're going to you know, go home. So as I mentioned, after surrendering a two-goal lead, Dortmund uh, reclaimed the advantage with a goal in stoppage time. That goal was scored by Gio Reyna, his sixth Bundesliga goal of the campaign. Um, he has shown this penchant for coming on late and scoring goals. U.S. fans connecting this one to that uh, run of goals he had right after the World Cup. So if you look at his goals per minutes played this season, is actually quite good. A lot of U.S. fans using that as an argument that he should be playing more. What do you think? He's a really good substitute. I mean, he's he's proven it. Uh, and and I think I think he deserves obviously praise and credit for continuing to do this despite all of the craziness. You know, we talked to. Uh, Doug McIntyre earlier in the show, uh, you know, about the situation and, you know, the summer is going to come and there will be, I, I think, a lot of talks because this, this can't be his lot going forward. I don't think he wants it to be, but to be fair to Gio Reyna, he's done everything that has been asked of him as a substitute on a continual basis and that they look down that bench and immediately point to him and he comes in and delivers. I think that says a lot about the quality of the player, his Obviously, his technical and, and physical attributes that he that he utilizes, but also the mentality. And this is also a player that we always kind of talk about, kind of looking like he's sulking and he's not happy about stuff. Uh, stuff, and some of that is I don't think I don't think fair because it's body language, and that's not always really what someone's thinking. But he's gotten on with it, and he's come in each and every time, and ultimately done his job. I mean, he handed the opportunity to get out of that mess to Dortmund. And then he, along with the rest of the team, squandered that opportunity. But I think if anybody is looking good right now from a Dortmund perspective, and it's not a lot, I guess it would be Gio Reyna in terms of his impact that he is making. He'd like to start, but I don't know. I still don't think necessarily that this means that he should be a starter for Dortmund going forward. And then uh, this week we have the Champions League quarterfinal second legs uh, on Tuesday. The one tie that I think is still very much in the balance, Napoli, AC Milan. AC Milan with a 1-0 aggregate lead. Napoli back home. It sounds like they're going to get Osimen back, who, who missed yeah. the first leg. So they're going to try to overturn that 1-0 deficit. The only thing I'll say is Mike Mignon, the AC Milan goalkeeper, might be the most informed keeper in the world right now. He made some incredible saves in that first leg. We did that Republic of Ireland-France Euro qualifier recently where he made a couple of mind-boggling yep. saves to uh, help France win that game. So they're going to have to put the ball past him. What do you think? Can Napoli do this? Uh, yes, I think they can do it. And uh, Osimen played this weekend. Uh, right. Yep, yep. 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 So that that I mean, because one thing to say he's available, it's another thing to actually have seen. Right. Him back right. Right. Think, right. I mean, he smashed that one off the crossbar. Right. You know, I think, look, he is a game changer. It's, so th this is, <laughs> yeah. I think they. I think they do it. I think Nap Napoli comes in, and I also think that his presence, I think, lifts everybody around him, and they feel that they are a different team with him on the field. Also Tuesday, Chelsea at home against Real Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid with a 2-0 aggregate lead, which is not a crazy hill to climb. But the way Chelsea are playing, they lost again to Brighton at the weekend. Uh, I find it very improbable that they're going to turn this around against Real Madrid. Yeah, I think that there is this, this sentiment that, that this eggs, these eggs, all of these eggs in this basket right now, that they're... Chelsea's too good not to have a big game. And I think a lot of people are pointing to that this is when it happens. I don't, I don't think so. I, I think they, they roll over, and I think Real Madrid wins easily. 
Then Wednesday, Inter back home with a 2-0 lead over Benfica. Benfica lost again at the weekend. That's now three straight defeats in all competitions after they had only lost once all season prior to that. So this uh, what was being hailed as a historic season is suddenly unraveling at the worst time. Uh, so I think Inter finished And they got to go to here. Milan, right? Yes, yeah, yes. That's not happening. And then Bayern Munich back home trying to overturn a 3-0 deficit against Manchester City. Pep is talking up the fact that you can't count out Bayern, that this Sadio Mane-Leroy Sané fight is going to have a galvanizing effect on that team. But uh, I think City should move on here. Yeah. I mean, on the surface, it looks done and dusted, right? I, was, I think I heard uh, our friend Eric Winaldo the other day saying that he still thinks that Bayern Munich will have a say in this. I, I tend to, I, I, as much as it hurts me, I, I tend to agree with him on this. I, I think there's something still there. I, mean, I, I can't quit you, Bayern. I just can't quit you. Yeah, we'll but, see. All right. Maybe an early goal, get the crowd maybe, going, you never know. Maybe. Uh, anything else? That's it. And that's Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay. So yep. uh, by the time you're listening to this, maybe you're watching it. And then uh, obviously Wednesday, and we'll talk about uh, all these uh, all these games and these, uh, these results later on in the week. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show. You, we send in you, uh, your questions here on uh, all the social media platforms uh, using that hashtag, Ask Alexi. And keep in mind that our handle out there on all those platforms is SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. Um, what do we got this week, Mossy? Uh, we've got a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hi, Alexi. Hi, Mossy. This is Harvey from Dallas. Hope you all are doing well. Who would you say is the best coach in men's national team history? What made them so good? Thanks. Bye. Okay. Well, thank you, Harvey, for uh, calling in on the hotline. That's a, that's an interesting. Let's let's just go. Let's do some numbers here. Um, let's. Okay. So Greg Greg Burhalter had a, has a seventy one point six seven percent win average, right? Uh, and that's the highest of any coach and look i'm not doing the ones that have coached two games and stuff like that but you know the people you know bruce arena by the way for comparison is a 66.55 jürgen klinsman 64.29 bob bradley 61.25 steve sampson 53.23 and bora militinovich 47.40 bob gansler uh, let's go back. So from basically the, the, the return to the World Cup in 90 forward, uh, Bob Gansler was a 48.65. Um, I think I think I am going to go with uh, with Bruce Arena and for a number of different reasons. Now, while Greg Berhalter has a higher win percentage, when it comes to what Bruce did, keep in mind that a handball away from going to a semifinal in the World Cup back in 2002. And look, the, you know, the, the soccer gods can smile upon you and you can find a pathway through and that can happen. But Bruce also did this uh, at a time that is very different, more than 20 years ago. The landscape of soccer was very, very different. Uh, the 
resources, the depth, the talent pool, um, and you know everything from Major League Soccer to the pathways now to Europe. All of those things were still kind of in the uh, the infancy. And Bruce Serena, I think, in that moment, in his what would be his greatest moment in the World Cup, showed the ability to bring together a team where you had players like, let's say, a Jeff Agus, who had been around, or players like Kobe Jones, be better than they had been, maybe even arguably the best they'd ever been. A guy like Kobe Jones accept and really embrace a substitute role and an effective type of substitute <laughs> to come in, like a Kobe Jones. Populate the team with some badass SOBs, Pablo Mastriani's, these types of players. Populate the team with young upstarts with the likes of Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley. Bring back a trio of goalies uh, that have competed for now over a decade in uh, Casey Keller and Brad Friedel and Tony Miola for that matter. So I think that shows great man management. And ultimately, I think that that team, it should have been no surprise that we they were successful because of the the makeup of that. Now we know what Bruce Arena has done because it's not just about the... Uh, you know, the World Cup. But ultimately, let's be honest, that's what you are judged on for the most part. And so getting out of the group, even at that point, was not necessarily something uh, to be, you know, to pat yourself on the back for. We had done that before, but obviously to get that far. And within that process, not for nothing, but to beat Mexico in a World Cup, dos a zero. I was walking out of the Dignity Health and there were some uh, fans walking the other way, and they said hi, and then they walked on, and they turned back around and said, Viva Mexico, Mexico right? And of course, I turned to them and said, Dos acero, como siempre, right? So it still lives in the folklore and the mythology um, of American soccer, and that's because of what Bruce Serena and that, te- uh, that team did. So I, I think, and best is subjective, right? But I think that still Bruce Serena has been the best U.S. men's national team coach in history for a number of the reasons that uh, that I said. What do you think, Moss? I was hoping you would break the internet by saying Greg Berhalter. Hey, I, I mean, if I had to rank them, then I think he goes. He, I think he goes second. You know, and it's only because he hasn't had while well, he had a World Cup moment and did what basically every other World Cup coach has done, other than Bruce Arena. If he had gone farther, then I think that there is an argument. But World Cup trumps all. And I know it might not be necessarily fair, but this is the gig that you're taking, is ultimately, in in the case of all these guys, to get the team to the World Cup and to do well in a World Cup. To what degree does the failing to qualify in 2018 hurt Bruce's legacy? It's a question yeah, yeah. Brazilians grapple with, with Scolari, too, won the World Cup in 2002, but presided over the 7-1 in 2014. Yeah, it, it tarnishes Bruce a little bit, but he already had that moment. And, so, and, and he was coming in to clean a mess. Bruce loves to tell people about how he loves to clean up messes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he loves to tell me, I came and cleaned your mess up at the Galaxy. And, and look, he did. 
and and he had did great things with uh, with the galaxy. And he was asked to come and clean up the mess that was there or the potential mess that was coming from Jurgen Klinsmann, and he failed. And that's always going to be part of his legacy. But I don't think that it tarnishes it enough where I wouldn't name him as my uh, best national team coach. Yeah, next up, we have a Twitter question, Matt Skinner. Alexi, what are your thoughts on some of the original clubs in MLS, Galaxy, Colorado, Red Bulls, et cetera, falling behind the newer sides, Cincinnati, LAFC, Atlanta, Austin? Do you think these clubs can ever captivate and entertain at the same level? And if so, how? Yeah, so I got this question today coming in, and it's actually, it's something that uh, that I think about, and I've talked about it before, but you have this, you know, as we get closer to almost 30 years of existence with all of the expansion and almost, uh, uh, you know, 30 teams coming in, in Major League Soccer and all of this incredible expansion that we've had, where you have this nouveau riche set that has come in and then these OGs, which is what Matt is talking about here. And some of the OGs have continued on and, you know, the best ones have understood that it's not 1996 anymore. And what worked from a business perspective uh, off the field or a competitive perspective on the field back then or in the early aughts does not work right now. And so they have had to, and many have done so willingly and successfully, evolve and change to keep up or to get left behind. As I said, some have and some haven't. But there's also the part where these new teams that have come in uh, these new MLS teams, they have benefited from all of these older clubs and all of that intrinsic knowledge and history and experience, all of the successes and all of the failures and all of the mistakes and all of those best practices that have been amassed. Now, they pay a whole lot more to come into the league, but they are also given this kind of playbook and history to be able to go through and to see what works, what doesn't work, and not make the same mistakes twice. And in a sense, you know, on the shoulders of greatness, they have, uh, they, you know, they have, uh, they, they have found ways to do that. And unfortunately, some of those teams, while they have been those shoulders to push other teams to greatness, they haven't also been pulled up or pulled themselves up to keep up. So, just because you are an OG type of MLS team doesn't mean that you can't keep up, that you can't change. But you do have to have people in place that recognize that you got to be able to think about the game in a very different way. And things can get, <clears throat> excuse me, things can get stale very, very easily. And if you don't have the understanding that if, if you're not growing, you're failing, then you are going to find yourself in trouble. And it does it does irritate me because I want to give reverence. I want to give respect to these teams that ultimately built this platform, built this league and this owner, these ownership groups and these communities and these fans. And it hurts me that in some cases they have not been able to keep up. But as I always say, Monsi, what have you done for me lately? Janet Jackson, it applies here. And you cannot rest on your laurels. You cannot live off of the past. But I do think that there has to be some recognition that it is, even though you're paying more, it is easier to come in now and be successful than to have started at the very, uh, very beginning. And that might not always make sense, 
but I think that it is true. And it's because of all of that work. And to be quite honest, some of the mistakes that have been made in the, in the past, but it doesn't give you, it's not an excuse for you not keeping up if you are one of those, uh, those OGs. And ultimately, Fans aren't going to care that you were around in 1996. It's all fine and well, and you can put it on memorabilia and and uh, and and your jersey and stuff like that. But it's about 2023. What are you doing in 2023 to be the best? And if you're using what has come over the last 30 years, that's all fine and well. But if you're just trying to do the same thing and it's not working out in 2023, but it worked out back in 2000 or it worked back in 1996, then that's on you. Uh, for those of us watching us right now, rather than listening, yes. how about this image over so, here? So, yeah, I just wanted to, to to point this out, not because it's two glorious uh, representations and, and works of art, if you will, from Dariush, uh, who tweeted us, tweeted uh, the, the State of the Union. So first off, the fact that he's interacting with our State of the Union account here on Twitter and, and myself, and that he is an avid watcher of the pod, that's that would be enough in itself to celebrate. But he also... Uh, you know, made this uh, this thing. And this is a before, after. And the only reason I wanted to have it visually, if you're not watching it, it is a picture of me back in, you know, the 94 with all of the hair and the denim and all that <laughs> with my arms around the version of me today, which is obviously much more clean cut. And I, I get a lot of questions about my aesthetic and how it has changed over time. And am I a different person? Well, I think we're all different people, especially over, you know, 20 or 30 years uh, in a, in a, uh, in a lifetime. I, st I like to say that I, I cleaned up on the outside, but I'm still a mess on the, uh, on the inside. Now there are, there are those that say that one of me is already too much and two of me, let alone, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in art form is, is way, way out of bounds here, but I appreciate Darius doing this. I wanted to show it, uh, to the people, uh, to the people out there. What do you think, Mossy? You look older in the younger picture. I, I get this a lot too. And, you know, I, my aesthetic, it was cultivated through music, you know, and I knew, and I've said this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. Back in, in the day, if you will, back in the 1900s, when I was running around with a lot more hair um, and that, that look, it was because I felt comfortable in it, but it was also a, a costume that I, that I put on because I, and I knew how that was going to play and how it was going to react. And it comes from, like I said, music and all that. But I also knew that it, it, it was finite. It, you couldn't continue to do that. And so <laughs> in a strange way, looking older back then was to my benefit. I was more intimidating and I looked more mature than I actually was uh, on and off the field. And then when I needed to kind of shed some, some years and try to look a little bit younger, if you will, it was ready-made to just shave and, and be more clean cut. Now, there are plenty of people that, that prefer that. Would that I could still grow that type of hair, uh, then maybe I, maybe I would. But I'm good with, uh, with, the new ver with the new version of me. And it's still all me, whether you, whether you believe it or not. I haven't changed a lot over the years. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, I'll give you my one, uh, my one for the road. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. 
Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Okay, welcome back. It is the end of the show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my uh, one for the road. Uh, we let this, this story kind of play out last week, and now we have some uh, kind of uh, closure, if you will, in terms of the decisions that have been made. And that is uh, the situation that happened last week at the, uh, at the Red Bulls game with uh, Dante Van Zier, the designated player, the Belgian who plays for the New York Red Bulls in the game against uh, the San Jose Earthquakes at the, in in the moment during the game, uh, there was a huge uh, uproar that happened on the field. And we come to find out that first there was an accusation that Van Zier had made a racial slur in this back and forth between uh, the two teams. The investigation happens on the field by the actual uh, officials that are there. And if they can determine something in the moment, then the appropriate action is taken. They couldn't do it in the moment. Uh, Van Zier continued on in the game. The investigation continued after the game. And we come to find out uh, days later that Dante Van Zier puts out a public statement and says um, and admits that this was something that he did. He was swiftly given a six-game ban for his actions on the field. There have since been protests when it comes to the fans, uh, the Red Bull fans, and even this weekend in their follow-up game as to continuing on with this player, uh, given the actions uh, and the, the racial, racial slur that occurred and that now has been admitted to by the player and, uh, and the club, and to Gerhard Struber, the head coach of the Red Bulls, for his actions in the moment, continuing to, uh, to keep the player on the field and uh, um, and not taking him off the field at that time, you know that one I'm I I can I can understand because you want to be fair to your player, and at that point I'm sure that there's information flying all over the place, and we from the outside certainly can look and try to lip read and 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 again try to understand what was happening uh, happening in that moment, but the the question is right now and the discussion is right now, and I mentioned uh, you know Sasha question and. Bradley Wright Phillips, uh, who were on the show this week, and I thought they did a, a really good job uh, of talking about this obviously very, very serious uh, situation and you know their belief as to whether this was appropriate punishment. I, I believe that this is appropriate punishment. Uh, I believe that the time was taken to make sure that it was appropriate in what was what was going on. Um, this is going to follow Lanzier. So it's easy to say, well, you should never play again, or you should just get uh, get rid of him. Okay, that's fine. That's that's certainly one way to go. But you know, Dante Van Zier is now going to have to deal with this, not just for the rest of his career, but for the rest of his life. Because every time that you pull up his name, this story is now going to be associated with him. And I'm look, I'm not, I'm not crying for for Van, Van Zier at all. He created this situation, and he is going to have to uh, deal with the repercussions of it, not just now in terms of the six-game man, but continuing on. He's going to have to come back into that locker room and, if he can, regain the trust and the respect of his teammates after doing a violent and despicable type of thing on the field. And I don't know. I don't know if he is going to be able, able to do that. But obviously, I think that the men and women uh, in Major League Soccer that were consulted and ultimately came to this decision, recognize 
that they want to give him that chance. And in that, I think that there is some um, benevolence and there is some mercy, if you will, but it's not assured that this is that this is going to happen. And the seriousness that this was that was taken with this, I think is appropriate. And I think ultimately that this is going to, unfortunately, that it ha- but it has to happen, continue to send the message. And it's easy to say, well, I can't, why are we having to continue to send this message? Because we still live, unfortunately, in times where people think that this is, that this is appropriate. And until people understand from the get-go, and I say people, it's not just players, it's people in general, but certainly if you're talking about players, understand that this is inappropriate and this is not something that we do, then unfortunately we're going to have to continue to do the things that state unequivocally we will not deal with this and there will be harsh, uh, harsh punishment. There are plenty that feel that this is not harsh enough. Uh, and certainly had it been a 10-game ban or, or who knows, a, a season-long ban, I don't think anybody would have come out and said that that is you know, that is unacceptable or that is, that is over the top. But I'm sure that Dante Van Zier now when he gets up each and every day would love to have, to be able to take back that moment because this is something, like I said, is a, you know, a scarlet letter, if you will, that is going to follow him around uh, forever. And it should. It doesn't mean that he can't be a good person. It doesn't mean that he can't do the things, and he's certainly going to do the things off the field to better understand not just that what he did is wrong, but why it is wrong. And I hope that he ultimately does. And I hope that he can continue on with his career, whether it's with the Red Bulls in Major League Soccer or, or not. I, I don't know. But, you know, this is unfortunately yet another, uh, another example uh, in a in a world and certainly in a game where there are too many examples. And, you know, Sasha Kleshin talked about uh, his former teammate, Romelu Lukaku, and everything that he is dealing with on a consistent basis. And so, unfortunately, it is not dissipating and certainly not to the degree that we would all hope and want to have happen. And so when there are moments like this, yes, you have to take the time to make sure that you are 100% sure that what happened happened. And then, as ha- happened in this case, once that, is, once that is done through that investigation, make sure that you do the things to show the player and all the other players and everybody else involved that this will not be uh, tolerated going forward. So I hope that we don't have to deal with other incidents like this, and I certainly hope we never have to deal with Nate Van Zier again in a situation like this. And that you know, he takes the time to understand not just that he did something wrong, but why he did something wrong. Mossy? Uh, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned some people don't think the punishment is sufficient. The Red Bull supporters are among those, and they're staging protests. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. You know, we've talked about the Galaxy protest. Mm-hmm. That's for something more mundane, not winning enough matches. This is something a lot more serious. So that's an interesting dynamic with the Red Bulls and their own fans. Yeah. I mean, this, this is actually, it's not the... It's not a a bad thing. It's actually I, I love the autonomy and I love the the ownership and I love you know the responsibility of supporters and fans out there. 
And, you know, they are the lifeblood of any club. And, you know, certainly there's fan groups that, that maybe want more than they, than they ultimately deserve. I don't think that that's a, that's a case here. And if you, if you disagree with something that is happening with quote unquote, your club, you know, you should have, you know, you should make people aware of what's going on. And I think that that's what's, what's happening, as you mentioned, in very different ways in terms of what's being pro. I can't keep up with sometimes the protests. I need like a Excel sheet uh, out there. But it just shows me that people are invested. They're invested in their team. They're invested in this league. And when something like this happens, that is a black mark, not just on the player and on the, the, and on the people involved, but on the club, the fact that they are taking that personally, that's actually a good thing. That's a good thing that, you know, the protest stems from this is not who we want to be as a, as a club. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that things are going to change. They may, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to change. But you will have been heard. You will have been seen. You will have made your point as to what you expect from your your product, which is is the team, but much more so from this team that you uh, that you know and love. So I, you know, that's that's good. And there will be more. There will be more protests. Some organized. Some legitimate. Eh, some probably not legitimate. Some that you might say, "Damn right, thumbs up, one hundred percent support you." And some where you may say, "This is ridiculous," and I'm going to roll my eyes at it. But ultimately, I think it comes from a good place uh, in that you want your team to represent you in the best possible way. And I know that's subjective at times, but you know this is, uh, this is part of growing up. Uh, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, listen, uh, I hope uh, you're having a good week. And we will be back again later on in this week. As Mossy mentioned, there's uh, Champions League <clears throat> going on and a U.S.-Mexico game coming up later on this, uh, this week. And you know, we can poo-poo it all we want, but yeah, I'm still going to watch it. Our special thanks uh, to Doug McIntyre for joining us uh, this week and talking to us about all sorts of uh, different things. We always love having him on. Definitely check out his work on a consistent basis when it comes to Fox. He's one of the, uh, the great ones that we have and a wonderful resource uh, that we have. We will talk to you again later on this week. Keep writing uh, and sending your, uh, 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 your, t- your tweets and all the different messages and using that hashtag Ask Alexi out there. Keep sending in your questions when it comes to our State of the Union podcast hotline at 657-549-2297. We will talk again, like I said, later on this week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size.